Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I love it when a conversation takes me by surprise. I usually already know the guests I'm interviewing, and I do my research ahead of time. So I generally know what to expect from these conversations. But every once in a while, things head off in a completely different direction, and the facts on the ground take me by surprise. Today is one of those conversations. Today we sit down with Anima Sugimoto, the founder of Japanese femtech powerhouse Fermata. And we talk about how Japanese attitudes towards women's health are changing and how the femtech movement is the driving force behind that change. Fermata speaks directly and candidly about topics that Japanese society has always preferred to whisper about. She's worked with industry, government, and consumers to change laws and attitudes, and is seeing real progress. Amina and I talk about how to get laws changed in Japan, what happens when women start frank conversations about their health and sexual needs, and what she learned by selling vibrators to Isetan department store's super conservative shoppers. But you know, Amina tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Amina Sugimoto of Fermata, one of the leaders of consumer femtech in Japan. Thank you. And thanks for sitting down with me. Of course, of course, my pleasure. I give a really brief explanation of what Fermata is. I'm sure you could do a much better job than I can. So what is Fermata? Uh, so we initially started as a research group within the venture capital. Mistletoe, so, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, run by Son Taizo. There is this one company that came across two things that I found out. One is not many male venture capitalists were interested in this emerging new technology of a woman's health. And then two, there are not many companies that are actually focusing on how to actually create industry in a product. So at Mistletoe, were you trying to get them to invest in these femtech companies? And So initially, yes. I still remember the day that we were sitting around in, in the table and there's one company from the U.S. that's actually called Modern Fertility. Now, what they did is they brought in existing technology of measuring AMH hormone, which basically we can measure how much eggs we've got left. This technology is available at clinics in the name of bridal checks in Japan. So basically, before you get married, you get the test, and if you can't get pregnant anymore, oftentimes that marriage just no longer. Wow, that's kind of dark. But what they did is that bring that technology to the hands of women, and what if we get to find out how long we can be pregnant at the age of, I don't know, 25, 30? Maybe then we can decide our own career, and that information doesn't have to be shared by anyone. I thought that that product was amazing. Unfortunately, not many who were sitting at the table found it interesting. So initially, Mr. Son, who was running the fund at the time, came up to me and said, if you think there is a potential for this market, why don't you create a research group that focuses around femtech to let people learn more about femtech? That, that seems like kind of a strange move for a VC. If you have an interesting market, 
an interesting product, a company that is seeking investment, a, a venture partner who's excited about the investment, why form a research group? Well, the problem is exactly that. I mean, only 5% of the global level investors are female, right? And oftentimes the question I get asked is that, what's the, what's the problem that the company is trying to solve? What's the business model? How, how, how is it going to make money? The things that for women, it's so obvious that there is need. Well, actually, let's, let's take a step back just so our, our whole audience understands. What exactly is femtech? Where do you draw the lines around what femtech? The femtech is a term that came around in 2012. And the person who created this term is called Miss Ida, started her company in Germany called Clue. This is the app, and they tracks administration. And when she tried to get fundraising, she struggled quite a bit because not many investors understood why it's so useful to have an app tracking period and how that would make money. Exactly the same problem that I had at Misoto. It's just that there's an obvious need, but it's not obvious for certain people. Sure, sure. So what she did was um, she came up with this term, femtech, and just by creating this term, it's all of a sudden become some sort of a new industry, a blue ocean. And then the investors slowly started getting interested. Instead of actually saying, oh, this is a product for menstruation, it's easier to say it's femtech. She created a category. Exactly, exactly. Category. So, so what is considered, what's inside that femtech box? Good question. So um, a lot of different definitions are out there. And in Japan now, the way people use femtechs, they're focusing on menstrual cups and period underwear, not so much tech. But the way Pharmata defines it is a product that basically solves women only or diseases that exist in men, but women have slightly different prevalence rate or different symptoms. So for example, women's specific would be fertility and menstruation and menopause, but also osteoporosis. Uh, dementia. We don't really know why, but the prevalence rate among women is higher. So, so broadly speaking, it's not just the technology or the products; it is the whole research ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these products now are B two C, but also B two B, infertility clinics and the treatments using AI and so forth. So, it, it really varies depending on from which angle you look at. Well, I guess all of the investment categories are kind of like that, right? So that makes sense. Now, um, before the interview, I had a, a great tour of your store downstairs. It's fascinating. So Fermata specifically. So we started in 2019. We initially started off trying to build a product. But then we quickly realized that this is an area where even if you come up with a really good product, difficult to sell because there's no market. A woman ourselves don't even notice what sort of unmet needs that we have. So what we do, do we have two businesses that we're running simultaneously? B2B business and B2C business. B2Cs, we deliver products to these consumers. We help them identify their own unmet needs. We collect data from these consumers. So what, what kind of products? So authentic uh, products. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going in a circle with that. No, I mean, can you give like just specific examples of, of like some of the products you're selling and, and so for example but um for example this is a product called lb trainer from the uk 
you basically uh, apply this little device into the side of your vagina and we can actually control our pelvic muscle. And there is an app that you can download and, there, and in the app, there are different games that you can actually play to strengthen your pelvic uh, muscle. And as a result, it basically prevents incontinence. That makes perfect sense. And it also makes sense why um, it'd be hard to get most male VCs to invest in it. Right. No, I mean, not just, I mean, there's no discrimination per se. It's just one of the cardinal rules of investing is you invest in what you know. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm not, and I'm totally again sort of saying, you know, uh, it's not about. I can see why it's so difficult to get funding for a lot of these these companies and why the, the femtech category is a huge help for that. So like the women don't even know, like quite often, like we ask women, do you know what happens if, you know, we don't train our pelvic mu uh, muscle after a certain age? They're like, no idea. And we didn't really get taught, right? Like what happens? How much do we bleed during menstruation? We don't even get taught. But anyway, um, we have a consumer business, but also we have B2B business. And that's our 80% of our sales come from that. What we do is we help companies in Japan develop products in this area. They have technologies that they can apply to new field. They just don't know how, or they don't have an idea. So what, what kind of companies are, are interested in developing these kind of products? Are they electronics companies? Are they... I can't say the details, but yes, electronic companies, supplement companies, food companies. And I think there's a social as well as global pressure for especially Japanese big public companies to do something around this field. Well, it is interesting. I and mean, we, when we were talking before, uh, we were both joking that, that a few years ago we're dismissing femtech as a niche market. Yeah. When it's half the population. Right. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it makes sense that large enterprises are also interested in, in addressing that. Right, right. So, on the B2C side, tell me about your customers. Who who are they? Are they younger women or middle-aged or the whole range? Yeah, so we sell product online as well as on our at our store. We have a store in, in Nogizaka, Tokyo, but also in Osaka. Usually, um, women working in 30s and 40s. But then when we do pop-ups at department stores, that sort of profile changed big time. Um, when we sell products at Iseta Mitsukoshi, women the age of like 50, 60 come. And, and I think it's it's another another thing that we're still trying to discover. Like it should be applied to all generation. But then, because it's a new market, we don't even know, we don't even know how these products are being sold. It, it's the exact opposite of a niche market. It's such a huge demographic that I imagine you would have to target teens and women in their 20s and women in their 60s completely differently. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Actually, let's talk a bit about that. So you mentioned the, the pop-up store in Isetan. Yeah, right. That's particularly interesting to me because Isetan is an extremely conservative traditional Japanese department store. So what was the reaction? I think we're very lucky because we started Formatsu just around the time COVID started. So department stores were struggling big time. And one of my very important strategies is we need to gain trust from customers. So if we sell these at, for example, Doki Hote, it could be seen as many of other toys. 
Whereas if you sell it at Iseta, which is, has 100 years of history, people just assume that everything that gets sold in that department store has passed through like tons of tests and then high quality, right? Did you get any pushback from the department stores themselves? Because I've noticed like women's health products, I guess all over the world, but especially in Japan, they're marketed in such a way that they don't really say what right. it is or what it's for or what it does. And your marketing is just very clear and very direct and just completely different. Right. And what was the reaction from these conservative department stores with that kind of positioning? So I guess, um, as I said, oh, we were very lucky that they needed to have some sort of new solution to get customers' attraction and attention. So they wanted to do this. I don't remember them hesitating. Uh, in fact, we had no problem selling female vibrators at the store. I find that surprising and incredibly encouraging. <laughs> so the funny story is, you know, when we did our Ginza Mitsukoshi pop-up, is this next to like a bedding section, you know, we had a pharmacy store and, and those in like 70s and 80s that come and they see these products and they get surprised at first. They're like, what is this? So we have like incontinence related products to sexual wellness, female vibrator too. And these are like all imported products that cost quite, you know, $300, $400. And these are the people don't really, they're not worried about money, right? But they also are interested, but never they could never access this product. So they come and they pick up, they're like, oh, is this a female vibrator? We'll buy it. I never thought that they were like, I never thought that we can buy this at Isetan. So Formata is the first company that actually sold female vibrator or Isetan apparently with the entire history that they have. And that's that's amazing. So both the the store management and the customers were just very accepting yeah. and like Yeah. You know, um I work with uh Miss Nodaseko, who's a politician, and there's one time we were having a conversation and Something that happened in Japan in the last three or four years, maybe COVID helped. But when we started this, there was no conversation around menstruation or the TV person could never mention it, like, you know, on the TV. But now in the last three years, something has changed. And a lot of TV shows is focusing on menstruation problems and menopause and, and so forth. So I was talking to Rasense and she mentioned something really interesting. In the last three, four years, New generations started to sort of uh, be on a leadership position in many different sectors that include political world, business world. And these women started to notice that these products in the industry is very important. And they're now taking risks to bringing this product, creating a market together. So one good example is when I was in doing pop-up in Fukuoka, down in Kyushu, which is a very conservative area in Japan. And one... TV producer, female TV producer came up to us, to our store and said, can I please borrow some of the incontinence related product, the ones that you actually insert inside vagina, right? And then, you know, train your pelvic muscle. And I was like, what are you going to do with this? She was like, I really would like to bring this back to the studio and have all the male uh, commentator to learn how to use it on the show. And I was like, are you serious? Like, you might get fired for that. <laughs> <laughs> and then she even said, she then said to me, I think it's really important that I do this now that I can. And if I get fired for this, I take the risk. And she did it. And then the show was amazing. She didn't get fired. But, you know, Miss Noda said that there are a lot of women like that who is taking risks to sort of trying to bring this product into the market. So I think we're very lucky when it comes to timing. This is, I mean, 
like I say, surprising and encouraging. But but Japan traditionally, historically, has has been very slow to respond to women's health needs. Right. So I think like birth control wasn't even available until like 2000 or 1999 or something like that, right? And I think like like sanitary napkins were approved like like 40 years or after US, yeah. So it, it's been like this steady 40 year lag right. for the last hundred years. Right. Is this just a blip? Is something changed? It's funny how like the term femtech well, I think Japan is the only country that it's became like sort of a movement and a trend. And if you remember, like maybe 10 years ago, there was a Me Too movement around, around the world. And I was in London at the time. There was a big women's march and, and what happened in the West. That was a huge movement, right? But that didn't really reach Japan. Um, when it comes to human rights, women's rights conversation, it's not really well taken here. So I think when the femtech, a word sort of arrived in Japan and when we start using for marketing, people start to associate that not as a product, but more like a movement. It's okay to get to know about our own body. It's actually a cool trend that is in the West, in New York, it's a femtech, is a thing. It's a movement. So people start to take it differently. Like in the US, femtech is an industry. In Japan, it's a movement. That makes a lot of sense. It's actually something that it's it's in some ways almost an excuse exactly exactly to to investigate and to try something new and to look into something new and to talk about it right so if you look at japanese fashion magazines i would say probably most all of it have used the term femtech in the last two three years they're just using it as a way to educate part of segregation maybe by introducing these products like so is this something that is a big city thing? Is, is I mean, is this something that people are talking about in Tokyo and Osaka and Fukuoka, or do you have a lot of business from rural Japan as well? It's slowly happening there. So as I said, we work with companies, right? Uh, big companies in Japan. First sort of hit Tokyo big cities, and it's now gradually sort of moved towards the, uh, to the countryside. And for example, Miyazaki-shi, recently got donation from uh, one of the largest public company called uh, Ichigo Kabushiki Gaisai, uh, which is the real estate company in Japan. They donated about 2,000 so how much that in dollars? $160,000? Right. As a, as a donation or for the use of Femtech. What does that mean for, for use in Femtech? How would they be spending? Yeah, I would like to know that. <laughs> But that's, again, again... Well, that's, that's the challenge with government programs. You're never quite sure how the money gets spent. <laughs> but again, at least, you know, now there is... A people started to think that we actually have to spend money in women's health. How? They're still learning, but at least they're using this term. I think it became a lot easier to, you know, do something about women's health by using this term femtech. That makes sense. So much of it depends on that, that creation of this brand new category. Right. But for us, we always say with a team, like we envisioned a future where we don't no longer have to use the term femtech. These products should exist without really, you know, having a specific category. We're using it now because we want to free the market around it. But hopefully eventually in about 10, 20 years time, what Formata wants to do is to create a market, bring in more options 
that available for future future girls in you know, 10, 20 years' time. It just becomes healthcare. Yeah, they've got the healthcare. No, I mean that that's the that's the end goal for sure, right? The store downstairs, the way when we created our theme was future convenience store. So we have women's health products there, right? And next to it there is a like a food or drinks, you know. They should be all this female health stuff should be considered it shouldn't be hidden. Because still in uh, pharmace- pharmacies in Japan, um, menstruation product pads and tampons are put in a corner, very at the back. And when you try to buy it, they put it in a um, paper bag so you can't see inside. And I was like, why? <laughs> but so the idea is normalize it. It's okay to have this product next to drinks and food and clothes and earrings and stuff. Um, so those series that are designed that way. So it's, it's a combination of uh, developing a lifestyle brand and just getting people used to seeing and talking about femtech products and women's health. Right, 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 right. So yeah, initially we wanted to make a product, but then we realized that there's no market. So I think the last three years, what we were doing is we're trying to sort of cultivate the market by working with consumer, by working with business sector, bring in consumer needs, hitting consumer needs to business side, create a product deliver the product to consumer, get a feedback, more needs, hidden needs, creating this like a cycle of femtech creation. Like a virtuous cycle. Right, right, right. Well, what about um, government support? Because the Japanese government seems to be very supportive of femtech. Uh, a number of politicians, civil service have come out in support of it. They've talked about it. But uh, at the embassy reception last month, you mentioned that you'd had some challenges getting devices approved in Japan. Yeah, yeah. So when I first started about three or four years ago, I went to the Ministry of Health, had all these products, IoT products from abroad in a bag. And because I used to work in policy, had huge contacts, I went to the medical device department and asked them, I'm trying to get this product you know, out in the market in Japan uh, because of the regulation. I can't. Is there any way? And they told me, unfortunately, no, please come back when there's a market. And I was thinking like, well, it's how the population, but in a way I do understand them because they have, their role is to protect the health of people. So we, they can't just like bring in random products and bring the market approved as a medical device. So that was, that was a challenge. So the existing pharmaceutical law, especially, I think it's the same in the U.S. everywhere too, but they rely on the past cases. And if there's no past products or like, you know, devices being approved, there's no, no one knows how to prove this product as a medical device. And, and they can't use cases from overseas. Not so much, but it's, it's getting better, but not so much. So one of the challenges that we had is all this product that we have, there's no categories under the pharmaceutical available that we can register products under. So for example, pelvic, again, pelvic floor training for those who gave birth or post-menopause, people suffer for incontinence problem. Now, if you train pelvic muscle, you can prevent that. This is a well-known me- uh, fact for medical students, but that is not applied in pharmaceutical field law. So there's no category to be able to register this product as a medical device. We can sell this product as a training, pelvic muscle training device, but we can never say it's for preventing incontinence. In order to do that, it has to be registered as a medical device, but there's no categories to register this product under. So how did you get around that? Right. So the first category need to be created 
before the product get registered. I have to update the, the logo first. Then um, I had a contact with uh, Ms. Noda Seiko, who is leading female politician. I went up to her and I told her, these are the reality. I show her the products and she got really interested. So through the help of LDP and Ms. Noda Seiko, we created Femtech Giren, which is kind of like study group with politicians and ministry people to discuss about a certain topic and identify problem and come up with a solution kind of. But so it was just both sides were interested enough and committed enough to to take the time to find a solution. Yeah. So first we created Giren, which is like a study group with Nola Sensei. And Farmata helped to design the contents of the study group. Study group is a series of basically meetings, right? And basically, based on what being discussed at meeting, we create policy recommendation. We submit it to Ministry of Economy, uh, Health, and all, all these high-level people. And based on that, a few outcomes that we actually managed to get. So one is, uh, do you know what Honebuto is? It's like a budgeting document for Japanese government. So whatever written on the Honebuto document, that means the government can actually budget uh, for we managed to put Femtech on that document first. That means Ministry of Economy, Health can actually use their people to do something around. Ah, uh, so studying it or revising laws or making recommendations. So that was the first step we did based on the Giren's sessions. So how, how long did it take to get to that point? Maybe a year, that was pretty quick. And about a year, and then from based on that, the Ministry of Economy started this program giving subsidies to femtech startups as a, as a trial to see like, you know, to see how the industry will go. They also hired a, a proper consultant to calculate the market size for Japan, which also helped for a lot of companies and I mean, VC to invest as well, because there's an actual official figure for the Ministry of Economy, right? Because before we didn't have that. And the third thing we did is we created a working group with the Ministry of Health to identify what are the flaws or what are the missing point within the existing pharmaceutical so what, what needs to be created so that more of these products can be put in the market. So yeah, a lot of lobbying activities, but for the past three, four years, that's the main thing that I've been doing. But it sounds like very successful lobbying activities. Again, like, you know, back to the first story, like, I think we're very lucky when it comes to timing because, you know, Nora Sensei is one, one person, there are a few other, this one lady from Minister of Health was really passionate about it. So she basically led the whole movement within the Ministry of Health, you know, within the Ministry of Economy, there are a few ladies who are thinking like, we have to do something about it. And they brought in uh, money, put a budget together to start doing this, like, sub-disease program for startups. So... There are individuals in different sectors, that, not just women, you know, men as well. Like, these needs to be more explored, discussed, and creating to a market for a lot of social problems that Japan face. So are we on the track to getting these products approved as medical devices? Mm -hmm. Yes. For example, this product is American product called CAG. Um, I get, yeah, it's a podcast, so the audience can't see. I know, see. it's audio only, but... So how would you how would you describe this? I'm not sure. Um, Otamasakushi, what's that in English? Oh, a tadpole. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of like a, a tadpole, like in a U-shape. Right. 
So the head bit goes into vagina. So I mean, quite a lot of this product goes into vagina. Yeah. But what it does is... It's femtech. <laughs> what it does, is it basically takes the, the measurements of a thickness of vaginal fluid. And what it can do is it can predict your ovulation as well as monitor the quality of vaginal environments. Currently in Japan, the only way to find out whether if you're ovulating or not is to go to clinic, get echo, or go to pharmacy, buy a stick, pee on it, and then find out if you're ovulating or not. And you had to call your partner and, you know, I'm ovulating today. And then you know, it's, for both parties, it becomes like a job and not even like romantic anymore. Oftentimes when women's having a fertility problem, the cycle is really off track. So using like a menstrual cycle app is not also working. With this one, you can actually precisely predict 99% of the time, we did a study in Tokyo University, when the ovulation is months to come. So you can actually plan like a hot spring trip with your partner, but also like you can actually track how your vagina is, is good condition or not to get pregnant. You know, one, one common theme from all of these products that you're showing me seems to be that women can have a better understanding of their own bodies on their own terms, yes, not, not yes. having to go to doctors. Exactly, exactly, right? So this product, we actually invested in this when I was in Mizuto. For three years, the government did not know whether they could have a medical device or not. But we, we worked with them for three years, and now finally we create a new category again so that this one can get medical device. So hopefully this year we can release this. That's amazing. Congratulations. So it's taken three years or so to get here. Three years, uh, I guess a very slow start, but slowly it's happening. Change the law is always a slow start. <laughs> you know, I mean, it seems like Femtech is coming late to Japan. Right. But it seems that it's being accepted very quickly. Yeah. So looking into the future, do you think that Femtech or women's health in general is going to play out in Japan the same way it has in Europe and the U.S.? Or do you see things developing differently here? I think we'll be different in Japan, not so much startups, but probably a lot of big companies will jump in. Uh, medical devices, startups are not so... Because we have public health insurance. Well, that's, that's one of the challenges. There's basically one buyer Right. All of Japan for, for right. medical products. But also, we can get pretty high-quality healthcare for almost nothing compared to the U.S. So if you look at the consumer sort of mindset, it's cheaper for us to go to clinics than to buy these devices. What well, is different in the U.S., so that's why all these like LT products and wearables are a lot more, there are a lot of startups in this area in the U.S. and not so much in Japan. Whereas the difference here is women's health area is out of pocket in Japan. A lot of it is prevention-related services. Only clinical ones are covered in Japan by insurance. Well, plus, and a lot of it is just the women being able to know on their own. Exactly. But then because all the startup scene is not well-developed, um, all these big companies have more resources, technologies to come up with products in these areas. So far, not so many startups, but more big companies are getting more insights through from Hatsa, getting insight from what's happening in abroad, getting all these ideas. But isn't that, couldn't that be a really great opportunity for femtech startups in Japan? If large companies are looking to get into the market 
and they're they're trying to learn about the market, that would seem to be an ideal time for femtech startups to be experimenting and trying new things and, and building a customer base. I think for that to happen, oh, that's a really good point, for that to happen, we need more resources, human resources, human capital resources in this industry. If you look at the West, a lot of these uh, companies that are actually doing femtech, right, the founders, uh, half of them are female, half they're male, and all of them are engineers or have medical background or professionals. If you look at startups, femtech startups in Japan, not so many actually have professional background. Quite a lot of them are just graduate from university. All these professional unfortunately are, especially female, are still in big companies and they're not engineers. They're not many female engineers, right? In order to make this product, we need to have female in the team. Male is also important, men is also important, but like females is definitely needed to understand the, the users. You've got to know your customers. Exactly. So outside Japan, is it fairly common to have men starting femtech? Yeah. Or... Yes. And also PhD doctors, you know, it's been treated as just like health tech. As it should be. Yeah. So, but those, those areas are mainly like Silicon Valley, Israel, you know, London, like, again, like very uh, open-minded and fan cities, not everywhere though. That is interesting. I think this is... It's a symptom of a larger problem. I mean, Japan has one of the lowest percentage of women founders in the developed world or even in, in Asia. So I guess that hits the, the femtech sector particularly hard. Right, right. Definitely, definitely. Well, actually, that, that brings me another question. Do you think that, like, the rapid acceptance of femtech is incredibly reassuring and optimistic? I'm really glad to hear that. I was actually expecting to hear a very different story. Right, right. And I'm so happy I didn't. Uh, but there's still a lot of problems that need to be solved. And I, I'm, I'm curious, do you think that some of the issues related to women's health need deeper solutions? Maybe the way that education happens in schools. Is there a deeper societal issue that needs to be addressed Definitely, here? definitely. I think um, there are a lot of organizations now in Japan that's trying to sort of change the way we've been taught like sex education at schools. Still quite a lot of schools are separate men and women. So the way I see is that though, like these problems, it's difficult to just solve one by one. But if this industry expands, maybe as a side effect, other problem will gradually get solved too. So what femtech is within the healthcare area, the so femtech, it basically symbolizes area within healthcare that for long been neglected. And that is not just women's health, men's sexual wellness, AGTPQ. There's so many areas within healthcare that for societal, cultural, religious reason, like there are definite hidden needs that people struggle with, but we just don't really try to, you know. Address. Address. Well, I think one of the great things that you and the femtech movement here have done is it's given people an excuse to talk about it openly. Yeah. And that is hugely important. So going back to, uh, thank you, going back to Sarisetan's story, one of the things that I was surprised the most is how parents who has disabled kids uh, mentally or physically have to deal with period or even sexual pleasure. If you can't move your body as you like, then even changing paths every time is is very difficult. If you can't mentally understand your needs for uh, 
sexual pleasures and all that, like children get older, they need to somehow get it out of their system, but there's no service or products around. So when we're doing Isetan pop-up, there were quite a lot of mothers come to our store and just like stand there and talk to us. Is there any product that help us, my daughter, to take care of her period or my son need to get support on releasing his sexual needs, but there's no other product around that. And I think gradually in the U.S. I've seen a few products for people like that. But I guess creating an area like a shop or a space and welcoming these people to say, it's okay to come and talk about it. Like, we'll listen and we talk. That's, yeah, that's incredibly important. Well, listen, Amina, before I let you go, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. Okay. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about women's issues or health issues, anything at all to make it better for startups and innovation in Japan, what would you change? I would increase the, the gender ratio of politicians and age as well. So... Well, it's more well, women, younger politician. Yeah? Well, how would that change things? Well, I mean, for example, the last months, you know how low fertility is a challenge. That is a big social issue in Japan, lower than, was it one? So last month, LDP politician came up with an idea, and it, would, it was actually quite public. So he said, for those who are receiving scholarship for university, if you go back to your old, your countryside and get married there, they would reduce the amount of payback. If you get pregnant and then give a birth there, you don't have to pay back anymore. That mindset, so there was a, a lot of things on Twitter, and there was a hashtag, we're not salmon, because salmon go back. <laughs> we're not salmon. I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> I love that. But I think these comments, policies only come because they're not really understanding the core issue of what young people are going through or what women are going through. Like, why do we have to go back countryside and give a birth to get our scholarship sort of? Yeah, yeah. It's solving the wrong problem. Exactly. And I don't understand why that would even like get past the LDP discussion and put on public. Like, how come no one even thought that is wrong? You think someone would have told them. Right, because... I think that's a really funny example. So have most of the supporters and people you've been working with, has it been driven by um, younger politicians and women politicians? I would say one or two. One female powerful politician, Misunoda, and then one young male politician from Kaboshima Ken, Mr. Miyazi. He was actually at the embassy too. Oh, I met him. I spoke with him. Yeah. Yes. I think we need more gender diversity in the political system. Also in the uh, the government system too, and the younger generation to be a part of that. If we talk about femtech, fertility, women's health, just with men, with with those and then those of, if they're above the age of sixty, like we're not really having anyone involved in a conversation. Well, you know, it's interesting because also I work with the ministries and the LDP on the startup side, and there's also some really energetic, younger, passionate people from the LDP working on startups. So it seems like even though the numbers are relatively small, the younger generation is is exerting a lot of influence. Yeah. Slowly. 
Maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. I guess the mindset is also very important. I think Kishida-san came up with his policy of a drastic policy on infertility. And in that document, in the summary of that, it says for everyone to have a choice of like having babies, but based of that is everyone has to get married before having a baby. And then marriage has to be heterosexual marriage. So that mindset is there, but the policy is based on that mindset. I think younger generation don't really agree with that anymore. So there's a huge gap. The policy of let's have all more babies to policy of let's have more women out in the workplace. Those two are not connecting and there's nothing to sort of connect those two policies. And I, yeah, and there's, there's too many people that see those as conflicting with each other when they don't have. They don't have to. And I think Femtech should be very supportive for working women who want to conceive, right? Because they can actually predict. But it sounds like you've gotten a lot of conversations started. You've gotten a lot of people talking. That's a great thing. Thank you. Well, listen a minute. Thank you so much for sitting down. Thank you. Thank you. And we're back. It's really impressive how much Amina and the team at Fermata have accomplished in such a short time. Now, yes, three years sounds like a long time in the startup world, and it is. But in the world of public policy and public opinion, this is lightning speed. And after listening to the conversation with Amina, you understand that Fermata is much more than just a startup and that femtech in Japan is much, much more than just an investment category. Femtech has become a way to talk about old problems as if they were something new. Presenting women's issues and their solutions as femtech prevents the condescending dismissals asserting that these problems don't exist or the claims that they don't need to be discussed because they've already been solved. And the speed at which this has been taken up by politicians, the media, and the general public throughout Japan shows just how badly these conversations need to happen and just how ready the Japanese public is to have them. Of course, things are still in an early stage, and Japanese women have a long way to go. In almost all areas of life, the gender gap in Japan is one of the worst in the developed world. But things are changing. From new laws and regulations being issued, to LDP study sessions, to direct enthusiastic conversations about women's sexual pleasure with the incredibly conservative customers and management of the Isetan department store. Things are changing, and people like Amina give me a lot of hope. If you want to talk about femtech and sexual equality in Japan, Amina and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 205 and let's talk about it. And hey, if you enjoy Disrupting Japan, share a link online or just tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is free forever and letting people know about it is the absolute best way you can support the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.